Uh, so keep your Bibles where they are, uh, Daniel 8, 1 through 27. That will be our text for this morning. We are going to look at Daniel's second vision, the first vision uh, that he received during the first year of Belshazzar. We looked at that in chapter 7. So this would be the second vision that he received. Um, the first vision describes four beasts or kingdoms that would rule over Israel during the times of the Gentiles, you know, that period between King Nebuchadnezzar, the first exile, and the return of Jesus Christ. And it also describes the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which will replace those beasts, those kingdoms, and as well as every kingdom. Second, uh, or actually Daniel's second vision is, is similar to his first vision in that it deals with kingdoms, and it uses animal metaphors like the first one did, um, but it's different in that it focuses on two kingdoms instead of four, and it's more explicit. It's more detail-oriented. Uh, really, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the, the statue represents kingdoms, and then Daniel's vision in 7 represents those same kingdoms, and those are really like summary uh, descriptions of those things. There's not a lot of detail, but here we get to focus on two of those beasts, two of those kingdoms, and, and there's more detail. There's, they're more explicit. There's more stuff here to focus on. Another thing to note is that the, the vision here in 8 is, I would say it's, it's primarily prophetic rather than apocalyptic. Um, some would say that you know, if it's prophetic and apocalyptic, they're synonymous, they mean the same thing. But I don't, I don't see it that way. I think prophetic has to do with the future. Can it have to do with the end times? Certainly. But it's, it just has to do with the future uh, in nature. And, uh, and apocalyptic has to do with the end. It has to do with the future, but it has to do specifically with the end times, the last days, the last things, the last kingdom, and, and what have you. And this particular prophecy in 8 seems to be more prophetic in nature than apocalyptic. There are a few allusions to the last days here, to Antichrist and so on, but most of the things listed in the vision were set to take place well before the last things, last days, Antichrist. And they actually occurred, it's very interesting, the things that are represented here actually occurred between 539 B.C., uh, which is shortly after, you know, well, it's basically during the time of Daniel in Babylon, but it's a little bit after this point uh, in which he received the vision. So from 539 B.C. to 163 B.C., that's a 376-year period. So the events that we're going to look at here um, took place during that 376-year period. But as I said, for Daniel, they are out in the future. This is all prophetic out in the future for him. Another thing to note before we really get into it is that uh, in a previous sermon or sermons, I, I can't remember when, it was probably a little while ago, uh, that the book of Daniel, maybe it was in my introduction, but the book of Daniel was written in two languages, uh, Hebrew, which is the native tongue language of the Jews, and Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Gentiles. It would have almost been like English. You know how there's countries that speak multiple languages, but maybe English is the primary there or what have you. So... Um, so you've got this particular book being written, it had been written in two languages, and in chapter 8, Daniel returns to Hebrew. Uh, so he'd been writing in Aramaic 
since I believe the latter part of, or the early part of chapter 2, or the latter part of chapter 1. Actually, I think it's the early part of chapter 2, and then all the way up to the end of 7. But now he picks back up and starts writing in Hebrew. God had Daniel write in these two languages because he's addressing really two groups, the Jewish folks and exiles, as well as the Gentiles. Uh, I would say he was addressing through the, both languages the captives and the captors. So it's a good way to look at it. So this is Hebrew again. Uh, and then lastly, I have divided this passage because it's pretty massive into nine sections, which uh, I plan to go through fairly quickly. I'll put more time and emphasis on one of the later ones, the interpretation. The others I'll just kind of skim through. Uh, but we've got a lot of work to do, so let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time. And I just pray that, um, pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. I believe he is. And I pray that, that he would do the work that only he can do, and that's open the eyes, minds, ears, hearts to the Scripture, to your truth. And I pray that not only would he open us to the Scripture, but that he would convict us with Scripture and through Scripture, and that he would sanctify us through Scripture, make us a little bit more like Jesus, or... Uh, there be any here who have yet to, to come to know Jesus in a saving way, that he would lead them to salvation, to the, the great abundant joy that we have in the Lord, our eternity. And so uh, we pray, Lord, also that you would be glorified during this time, that, that uh, these uh, hearers, these folks who have come today um, would not hear Pastor Phil, but that they would hear Senior Pastor Jesus. Uh, that they would uh, listen to him and hear his voice, that it would be him who instructs us here today. So receive the glory, <clears throat> everything. May it all point to you and do your work here. We love you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you guys ready? Are you awake? You okay? You're alive? Do you have a good weekend? Good. Mine was a blur. Let's look at section one. Section 1, the time and place of the vision, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and I saw, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. Daniel's Second vision came during Belshazzar's third year as king over Babylon. And if you remember from chapter 5 when we were there, we learned that he was the last Babylonian king before the next kingdom came in and took over. In the vision, Daniel saw himself at the citadel in Susa, standing on the bank of the Uli Canal, which is in the province of Elam, Susa was one of the Persian royal cities and was located along the Uli Canal, about 200 miles east of Babylon. So understand that Daniel is still in Babylon, but in his vision, he sees himself 200 miles away in, in Susa on the Uli Canal. This is the location where King Xerxes would later build a magnificent palace, which is where the events recorded in the book of Esther would take place. So this particular location is, is a pretty special location. It's special because Daniel 
envisioned something there, that, that it was a place where he found himself in the vision and because of Xerxes and Esther and all of that. And there's actually at this location, there is a, a tomb that has been built there for Daniel. And some say, tradition says that he was actually buried there. I don't know if that's true. A citadel, in case you're wondering, was a, a city's stronghold, usually a stone tower where people sought safety during an attack. Um, I, I used to play a, a really, I don't know if it was cheesy or cool, I thought it was cool, but I used to play a, a computer game called Ages of Empires. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a computer game where you basically can start out like in the Stone Age and you can, you know, maybe it's like Clash of Clans or something like that. They have all these other versions of it today, but you can kind of build a village and then you can get certain skills and upgrade to the next age and go out of the Stone Age to the Iron and so on and so forth. And uh, in the game, you could build a town center, which was basically a citadel. And it had a, a bell that you could ring if you were under attack. And when you rang the bell, all of your villagers, uh, city folk, would run and go into the citadel and hide. And uh, you would leave them there in the citadel until the attack was over. Or, if you're like me and a pathetic gamer, uh, you would basically be overpowered and watch your citadel get burned to the ground with all of your people inside of it. Uh, which was a little discouraging. I have a nephew uh, who I used to play with online, and this is way back. And, uh, you know, it makes a sound when you're under attack. It goes, burr, burr. it's like a horn that blows. I actually have it for my ringtone. And uh, it just reminds me of the good old days. And I tell you what, I'd be sitting there talking to Cameron, my, my nephew, and, and, you know, he'd be over here building his realm, and I'd be building mine, and we would choose to be allies. And then I would hear, burr, burr. And I'd look over, and he's got 75 archers attacking my wall. It's like, dude, what are you doing? We have an agreement. <laughs> I have to put everyone in the citadel. Then he would come in and bulldoze it. Uh, but that's kind of like what it is. It's, it's a center that would be in, like, in the middle of the town, and it would be a strong fortress, a place of safety. You put everyone in there when those hordes of Goths or Persians with their war elephants were attacking you. And I think that they get the idea. It's borrowed from... This, it's borrowed from Scripture. It's borrowed, borrowed from history. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second, the ram. Okay, you got the place and location. Second, the ram. Verses 3 through 4. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, uh, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and, and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. The ram that Daniel saw had two high horns, with one being higher than the other. What does that remind us of? Um, if you read the book of Daniel or been with us for any length of time, it reminds us of the second great beast in chapter 7, the bear that had the ribs in its mouth that was also raised up on one side. It's like one side of the bear was higher than the other, verse 5, chapter 7. This ram that he saw charged to the west, it charged to the north, and it charged to the south. This means that it conquered 
in those three directions that it dominated and trampled and conquered and destroyed in those directions. The ram was so powerful that nothing could stand, as it says, nothing could stand before him or rescue from his destructive power. It literally did as it pleased. There was no resistance against it. Nothing could stand against it. It plowed through everything in its path, and it grew in power, and it grew in greatness. That's the ram. Number three, the male goat, verses five through seven. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Okay, so that would just be freaky. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes, between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Daniel saw a male goat coming from the west. It was moving so quickly that it looked as if its hooves were not touching the ground. I was thinking of the roadrunner. Remember Wiley Coyote and the roadrunner? He moved so quick, his legs just looked like wheels, you know, that were levitating and floating over the ground. He sees this, he sees this goat come in so quickly that it's, it's, it's almost like it's hovering. Back to the future action on a skateboard, right? And it featured a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Conspicuous. What does conspicuous mean? It means obvious. It means attention-getting. Like, there's no way that you missed it. And I guess that picture does a poor job of capturing what took place, because that looks like it's out of a children's book. Uh, But it gives you a visual and an idea, and it's kind of stretched, so Daniel is very wide. Uh, The male goat charged the ram, but stopped right in front of it. So he comes right up to him and stops... And then he swung his conspicuous horn and broke off the ram's two horns. The male goat was too powerful for the ram, and the ram was then thrown to the ground and trampled. There was no person or beast there to rescue the ram from the goat's power. No rescuer. Number four, the male goat's little horn, verses 8 through 9. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Uh, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Daniel noticed that as the uh, goat grew in greatness, something unexpected happened. Its conspicuous horn was broken off and then immediately replaced by four conspicuous horns that pointed toward the four winds of heaven. What does this remind us of? Back in Daniel chapter 7, the leopard with four wings and four heads, verse 6. From one of the four conspicuous horns came a little horn. It sprouted and began to grow. It became exceedingly great as it charged. It's like the horn now is charging to the south, to the east, and into the glorious land. What is the glorious land? It is a reference to the land of Israel. What does this little horn remind us of? The little horn in chapter 7, right? The Antichrist, verse 8. So a great question comes to mind here. Do these little horns, are they the same? Are they synonymous? Do they represent the same person? Do they represent Antichrist? No, they don't. In some 
Bible teachers with different eschatologies will, end times views, will say, yeah, they're the same. Uh, but I don't believe they're the same. They're, they're two, different, uh, two different little horns. In chapter 7, the little horn emerges from ten horns out of a different kingdom. Here, he emerges out of four horns from a, a, a different kingdom. So they're not the same. Uh, they are, however, similar in their ungodliness. They are similar in their power. They are similar in their violence. But they are two different kings. According to Daniel's visions, the little horn in chapter 7 will rise to power right after the second advent. That would be the second coming of Christ. Whereas the little horn of chapter 8 will rise to power during the time of the male goat. That's a whole different kingdom. Okay. Number five, the little horn's devastation. Verses 10 through 12. And I hope you're okay with me summarizing these. What I'm really trying to do is get to the interpretation. The little horn's devastation, verses 10 through 12. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So the little horn uh, will enter the glorious land, right? And slaughter and subjugate the hosts of heaven, which is not the angels. That is a reference to the Jews, the people who live in the glorious land. The little horn will assume the throne at Jerusalem and try to exalt himself uh, to the same level as that of the prince of the host, which is a reference to Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isn't this what the angel Lucifer tried to do before he was kicked out of heaven? Uh, you know, he tried to exalt himself uh, to God's level and beyond, right? If you've read in Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14, 4, the devil, well, he's not the devil at this point, he's Lucifer, he becomes the devil, he becomes Satan, but he said in his heart, I will make myself like the Most High. Those are Lucifer's words, that angel. He, he desired to be as, as high and as glorious and as exalted as God Himself and even beyond. And, and that is precisely what we see playing out here. The little horn mentioned here will mimic Lucifer, the devil, and try to exalt himself to God's level and beyond. And the Antichrist will attempt to do the same thing. He also... Uh, this is like a foreshadow of him. He will come and, and attempt to exalt himself up to that level. You can read about that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And I thought about this. The Antichrist, you know, these little horns, the Antichrist, whatever, they're, they're really terrible. I mean, who, who would try to exalt themselves to God's level? And, and who would try to usurp God's throne? And who would compare themselves to to the prince of princes, you know, and the king of kings and all that. And these guys are really, really horrible. How dare they? And then I realized that that is the position and attitude of all of fallen humanity. These guys may have done some things that are worse than the average Joe, but anyone and everyone who is outside of Christ is an antichrist. We're all sinners. You know, we're, we're all sinners. We're all, we've all, as Pearl says, committed cosmic treason. And so, are they really bad, these guys? Certainly. But humanity is really that bad. 
If it weren't for the grace of God, all of humanity would continue on that path. So I tend to get critical when I read about people like this or people that are coming or have come and when I read the news headlines and when I find people who disagree with my political views or my eschatology or my view of scripture or my view of family or my view of marriage and what, how stupid, how foolish, who am I kidding? If it weren't for the grace of God, if it weren't for the grace of God in Christ, I would still be an antichrist. I would still have these blaspheming views and things. And so uh, we're all really, really bad. And I'm so thankful that Jesus is really, really good and that he has chosen to redeem many. It's wonderful. The little horn also will, uh, the one that's in view here, he will also end the sacrificial system, which is something that the Jews have had for a very, very long time. He will bring that to an end. You won't be able to sacrifice to God anymore in Jerusalem at the temple. He will depose the high priest. Uh, he will overthrow and defile the temple. These are all things that are represented in that text. He will demand to be worshipped. He will take truth, the Torah, if you want to put it that way. That was the Bible of that day. He will take it and throw it to the ground, and he will also act and prosper. And that's the thing that just befuddles us, right? How can someone who does these things against the Most High God, against God's people, actually continue to act and prosper? How? God's design, God's plan. God uses all of these things, these horrible things, the good, the bad, and the ugly to accomplish His purposes. But it just blows me away. We tend to think that the only people that deserve anything good from God are those who know Him. Well, God has a, a, a general grace, if you will, a grace that applies to all in a sense. He provides for all. He shows His kindness to all. And He shows it in a more specific fashion to, to His own people, you know. But, and it's just crazy how enemies like this can prosper. And it happens, and it happens, and it happens. And then ask yourself, did I prosper in a sense before I knew Christ? Sure you did. <laughs> sure you did. God took care of you then too, didn't He? Yeah. So there's a difference now though. So He will act and prosper. Number six, the angel's question. This is where we start getting to the stuff here. Verses 13 through 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking. That's a reference to an angel. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Daniel heard an angel ask another angel a question concerning the length of the desecration of the temple that this little horn will, will commit. How much time will there be between the cancellation of sacrifices, right? That's when this desecration begins, to the restoration of the temple. The angel, angel turns to Daniel and says, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there are a couple of different ways to translate this number. Some say that the 2,300 evenings and mornings represent 2,300 20, you know, full 24-hour days, which would be a little over six years. And I don't think that's accurate. Others say it represents 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices. 
There were two sacrifices made at the temple each day, one in the evening and one in the morning. Why would they make one in the evening than, you know, 12 hours later or so in the morning? Because the Jews had a whole different daily calendar than we do. For them, days did not, they, do, they don't begin. They didn't begin at midnight. They began at roughly six or nightfall. So, you know, at the beginning of the day, which was literally the night before, the evening before, before midnight, roughly six or seven, they would make a sacrifice. And then in the morning when they got up, they would go to the temple and do it again. So there were two sacrifices made each day. With two sacrifices being made each day, the 2,300 sacrifices would take place over a period of 1,150 days, right? Or a little over three years. And I think that that's the right way to interpret it. So the desecration of the temple would last either 2,300 days or 1,150 days. Which one is it? Can we know for sure? Yeah, maybe, but I'll get into that in a little bit, uh, in a little time here. I'll get back into it in a moment. Seven, Gabriel's intervention. This is where it really starts. Taking it up a notch. Verses 15 through 19. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Daniel was unable to interpret the vision on his own. And this is, again, a real challenge for him because he was able to do it with Nebuchadnezzar. He couldn't do it in chapter 7. He couldn't do it here. He got the visions here, but he didn't understand. And at this point, since he's wrestling with it, he's looking, he's seeing, and he's trying to figure out what is going on here, but he can't understand it. He doesn't have the interpretation, and his curiosity really peaks at this point. And at that moment, one having the appearance of a man appeared before him. It was the angel Gabriel. God sent Gabriel to interpret the vision for Daniel. Daniel then heard a voice instruct Gabriel. It was the voice of a man. It sounded like the voice of a man, and it came from between the banks of the Uli Canal. That means over the water. It's as if this person that's calling out to Gabriel and instructing him is standing over the water and then speaking. Whose voice was this? This is the voice of God. God chose at this point to use the dialect of that day and to speak in front of Daniel to Gabriel. (laughs) Daniel understands what's being said. He can comprehend. God said to Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel then approached Daniel and Daniel became frightened. He actually fell prostrate, which means that he He basically bowed down. He bowed down before the angel. And Daniel is not the only person in in the Bible who actually bowed down before an angel who made this mistake. Uh, The Apostle John did it during his visions in Revelation 22.8. And he also got rebuked in verse 9 and said, Get up, I'm a servant just like you. Worship God alone is what it says there. Daniel kind of does this. John did it. Others have done this. 
Gabriel comes to him. He's totally frightened. He's shaking in his boots. His knees are knocking. And Gabriel said, Daniel, son of man. He refers to him as son of man. Now, this title refers to his humanness, his frailty, his weakness, and should not be confused with the son of man, Jesus Christ. Gabriel told him that the vision has to do with the time of the end. Okay, this is not a reference to the actual end times and second advent, but to the end of the male goat's power over Israel. Daniel, uh, first Daniel is totally frightened. He's shaking in his boots. And then when the angel tells him, I'm going to tell you what's going on, I'm going to tell you about the vision, which has to do with the end, Daniel's fright and terror reached its pinnacle and he passes out. I like how he says, and I laid down and kind of took a nap. That's a nice way of saying I was a total sissy lala and blacked out and hit the floor. (laughs) Totally passes out. I mean, he's just, really? You know, he's out. He's asleep. He's gone. He fainted. And Gabriel stoops down and touches him, and he awoke and rose to his feet. With just a touch, he comes out of that frightened pass out. Gabriel basically says, let's do this again. I'm going to make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. end. Translation, I'm going to tell you what the vision means. Eight, Gabriel's, that was his intervention. Now we're at eight, Gabriel's interpretation. So here's the real meat of chapter eight. Here's where we get the interpretation. Here's where we get the meaning, and this is where we will draw our application and closing stuff from. Verses 20 through 26. Here's what Gabriel said. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat, that's a detail that he adds here, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And then he wraps it up with this statement. He says, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you uh, is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns uh, the distant future or the end. So the ram, let's just give some commentary on it. So the ram with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia, which is what we call the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Or the bear of chapter 7. The goat represents the king of Greece or the Greek Empire, The goat's conspicuous horn represents this empire's greatest king. He refers to it here as the first king, but Philip of Macedon was the first king. This is not a mistake. It's just that he wasn't really the popular king. So the conspicuous horn here represents the empire's really, in a sense, first king, but its greatest king, who is none other than who? 
Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great crushed and conquered the ram, right? Medo-Persia. He's the one that invaded and and conquered Medo-Persia. He's the one that took over their territory and power, and he did it very swiftly. Remember how his feet are kind of hovering above the ground? That's what the portrayal is here. That means speed. And this guy was a lightning-fast general, and he went in and crushed Medo-Persia very, very quickly. The broken horn represents Alexander's demise, his death, okay? Some say that that he died of cirrhosis of the liver uh, because he was allegedly a heavy drinker. I think he was poisoned. I think he was poisoned by a guy named Iolus, who was the son of a particular guy named Antipater. Antipater was a Macedonian viceroy whom Alexander had discharged for misconduct. Iolus was humiliated. His son was humiliated and wanted revenge. He hid his true identity. He was, he was a master of deceit. He assumed an alias and somehow was able to get hired on to Alexander the Great's staff. He became his wine bearer. So if, if, if you want revenge, hide your identity, find a way to get employed by the one you want revenge against, and become the one who pours the wine, right? And that's exactly what he did. And he was pouring wine the night that Alexander got deathly ill. Uh, He was in the middle, they were throwing this big party after a campaign, after they had won, and it was really nothing less than a drunken orgy. Unfortunately, that's how they partied back then. I guess people still do that today. What happens in Vegas stays there. Uh, Not boasting about it, I think it's terrible, but it happens. But anyways, there's this huge party going on, and Everyone's drinking and having a good time, and, and Alexander's drinking, and his wine poor Iolus keeps coming over and filling his... They called him bowls. You know, you have a 12-ounce beer. They had bowls of beer back then. Big thing of, of, you know, big chalice, and he's drinking, and he's drinking, and all of a sudden he stands up, drops his cup, and, and, and clinches his chest. Ah! And then he is taken out of the party, and he goes and lays on his bed. And he stayed there for several days. He was immobile. And then he started to recover a little bit. And then, you know, this is all happening over a couple of week period. And then he started to get worse. And then his general said, we better bring you out and, and, you know, in the palace, keep you in your bed and have your troops, your soldiers come through and visit you. You're probably not going to make it so you can visit with them. And they came through one at a time, thousands of them. They came in and shook his hand and all that. And he was just nearly out of it. And he never recovered. Fourteen days later... He died. The conspicuous horn fell, right? Shortly after his death, the Greek empire was divided into... I mean, he had no heir. He was in his early 30s. He had no one to leave his kingdom to. And therefore, his kingdom was divided into four smaller, less powerful kingdoms. They are represented by the four conspicuous horns uh, that we see in the text here, as well as the four heads of the leopard in chapter 7. The kings of these kingdoms were Ptolemy, Cassander, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. Near the end of these kingdoms, right, you've got, these, you've got the Greek empire that's divided four ways. You've got North Africa and the region of Israel. You've got, to, you've got north, south, east, west. You've got them spread out all over. They're all reigning. It's really one empire, but not. It's four. It's divided. When those kingdoms were near their end, and it says when the transgressions, sins, have reached their limit, a bold-faced king who understands riddles 
shall arise. That's what the angel said. This bold-faced king is represented by uh, the little horn, right? The horn that crops up from the fore. He is the little horn of verse 9. He is the one who causes devastation, right? I talked about that in verses 10 and 11. As the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, and the Israelites would have to wait over 400 years to possess the land of Canaan, Genesis 15, 16. So the little horn was not allowed to rise to power until sin had run its full course. And the time for God's indignation to be poured out through this king had come. The transgressions or sins of the Jews, of God's people, are in view here. For it is against the Jews and against Jerusalem that this little horn, that this king, pours out his wrath. Through this king, God gives his people what they deserve for their idolatry, for turning away from him. He gives it to them through this king. God gives his people through this king what they deserve, the judgment that they deserve, the discipline that they deserve in full measure. And it says, and the angel talks about it more, it says, the king's power, this king's power shall be great. Why? Because he will gain the allegiance of many through craftiness. He will exercise his power and succeed at destroying mighty men and the saints, which translates as Jews. This king will be cunning, okay? And he will be able to deceive many. He will trick people into believing that he is a friend, okay? Have you ever been tied to somebody like that, that had you going? Maybe you're thinking, I married her. I hope not. It's not good for you to make that sound, Carl, when I say that, uh, with your wife standing next to you, sitting next to you. Have you ever had somebody like that in your life, a coworker, somebody that you totally thought was a friend, somebody that you totally believed was on your team, on your side? And then, bam, without warning, they turn against you and cause you so much grief and trouble. And that is exactly what this little horn, this king, will do. He will trick people, his subjects, into believing that he is a friend. And without warning, he will turn against them and destroy many. He will be prideful like Lucifer and attempt to exalt himself to God's level and beyond. He will attempt to supplant the true prince, Israel's Messiah. He will actually claim to be Israel's Messiah and lead many astray. That's how cunning and crafty this little horn will be. But, it says, the angel tells us that he will be broken. He will be broken, right? When he kind of reaches this pinnacle here of pride and devastation and unrighteousness and ungodliness, he will be broken and his destruction will not come, it says, by human hands, which means that it will come at the hand of God. What does this remind us of? It reminds us of what is going to happen to Antichrist. He will be struck down by the Ancient of Days, chapter 7, verse 11, right? He's not going to be killed by human hands. He will be struck down by the Ancient of Days, by God Himself. A similar thing will take place here, and we'll get to how that happens. And then the vision concerning the 2300 evenings and mornings is accurate and true. It will come to pass. But the angel says, put it aside for now because it is way out in the future. So this is out past Daniel's day, out past his time, 376-year period that begins shortly after this moment. The question, really, that comes to mind here is who is 
the little horn of chapter 8. And I, and I think that this is, this is the part that, that where the most debate is, you know, among Bible preachers and teachers and scholars. And who is the little horn of chapter 8? And, and quite frankly, the consensus among many, most, at least the ones that are really, really in tune and competent, the consensus is, is the same. They all believe it's the same person. There's a handful out there that don't. Who is the little horn of chapter 8? Who is this horn that will rise from the fore and cause this devastation and do these things and exalt himself and, you know, assume the throne of Christ? And, and another question, has he already come or will he come in the future? As I said earlier, most of these events occurred between 539 B.C. and 163 B.C. The little horn appeared, the one that's in reference here, the little horn appeared during the latter part of that 376-year period. That means that he's already come. doesn't mean that there isn't one like him to come, Antichrist, but this particular one here that rose from the four horns, he came. He's already been here. Who is he? Who is he? He would be the emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. How many of you have heard of him? Antiochus Epiphanes. That's who it is. After murdering his brother, who had inherited the throne in the Seleucid dynasty, he came to power in 175 B.C. After defeating Ptolemy VI in Egypt in 170 B.C., he decided to attack Jerusalem, the beautiful land. Remember what it says in the prophecy, that this king, this little horn, will rise up and attack. He will enter, attack the beautiful land. What did he do when he attacked the beautiful land? What did he do when he attacked the land, the land of Israel? He subjugated the Jews. He desecrated the temple. He plundered the temple treasury, took all of its gold and money out of it. From this conquest, he entered or he returned to Egypt in 168 B.C., but he was forced by Rome to evacuate. On his return, he determined to make the land of Israel a buffer state between himself and Egypt. He attacked and burned. When he went to make it a buffer state, he went and he attacked and burned Jerusalem and, and literally killed multitudes. This is how the stars and the saints are falling to him in the prophecy. The stars is just a reference to, not angels again, to, to the Jews, to the Jewish people. Uh, the Jews were at this point forbidden to follow the Mosaic law in observing the Sabbath, their annual feasts, uh, traditional sacrifices, and circumcision of children. These are all things that they do in accordance to the law, and they were prohibited at this point from doing any of these things. The sacrificial system was ended. The temple was desecrated. I mean, this stuff parallels insanely with this prophecy. And listen to this. In 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes erects an altar to Zeus. That is the, the, the king god of the Greeks, and, and the, uh, for the Romans it was Jupiter, right? Same god, just a different name. In 167 B.C., he erects an altar to Zeus, their chief god, the king god over the Greeks, in the temple court. So he puts up an image of this god, and I have no idea what it would look like. And he also erects an altar to this god, and he sacrifices a pig on that altar in the temple. You talk about going after the Jews. Killing them is one thing. Terrible, horrible. But desecrating their temple, 
attacking their religion in this way. He literally defiled the temple with that act. And I heard from another historical account that he took blood from that pig and spread it all over the temple to further um, contaminate it. And this is known, if you've studied the Bible and history, this is known as the abomination of desolation. He then ordered, not only did he do this, but sacrifice a pig. Pigs, no, no. No bacon for Jews. No hogs. He does this in their sacred place, which contaminates. Not only does he contaminate it at this point, but he actually orders the Jews to offer unclean sacrifices and to eat swine's flesh. If they don't comply, he defiles their place and tells them, you've got to do the same thing. And if they do not comply, he will put them to the sword. He will kill them. And this was probably one of the most devastating moments in Jewish history when this took place, when these things transpired. Some say that Antiochus Epiphanes was the, throughout all of history, was the worst persecutor of the Jews. And some would contest and say, what about Hitler? Well, Hitler was horrible. I mean, Hitler may have killed more Jews than Antiochus Epiphanes did. Um, there was no temple for him to defile. He probably would have if he could have. But this guy is right up at the top of the list of the enemies of the Jews. He was horrible. The Jews were so utterly outraged at what he had done to the temple, at what he had done to their Judaism and their sacrificial system. They were so outraged at how he had erected this, this image and altar to Zeus that while he was away, he went away down, I think down into Africa again, down into Egypt to conduct business, military. I don't know what he was doing. He was somewhere. When while he was away, they staged a revolt and went in and removed that image and that idol from the temple and destroyed it. They, they took their revenge in a sense. And Antiochus learned about this and became infuriated. He was enraged. He actually vowed to turn the city of Jerusalem into a cemetery. I'm going to kill every Jew. This is what he vowed to do. On his way to Jerusalem, on his way to fulfill this objective and to strike this death blow to the Jewish people, he was suddenly afflicted with a horrible disease that caused his body to be eaten alive by ulcers and worms. His suffering was unbearable, and the stench from his own body was so vile that even he could not stand the smell. Finding it impossible to fulfill his threat, he confessed that he knew he was suffering because of what he had done to the Jews and to their worship. He died in misery, a foolish man who thought he could stand against God, who thought he could stand and oppose God. He was broken. As the prophecy says, he was broken. He was destroyed supernaturally by the hand of God. He wasn't conquered by some person, by some other military conquest. He was struck with illness and died immediately by God himself. Antiochus's desecration, and here's, this is just fascinating. Antiochus's desecration of the temple began in 167 B.C., the temple was cleansed and restored by Judas Maccabeus roughly 1150 days later in 163 B.C. Man, that, that's what I call precision. That's what I call precision. Now let's look at our last piece. Daniel's response, verse 27. 
when I got into this, I was bouncing around my office. I was thrilled. I was ecstatic. And that's because God has graciously opened my mind and maybe some of yours to what's actually played out here. And we're looking at it from history, so we have total advantage over Daniel. But Daniel's response is extraordinary. 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. <laughs> Daniel paid a high price for receiving this vision. He, he received a revelation he could not understand, a vision that he was commanded to keep to himself. If this were not enough, the experience so drained his strength that he lay sick and exhausted for days. This is the impact this vision had on him. He did, however, eventually recover, and he did rise from his bed, and he did return to the king's service. Closing. You with me so far? You okay? You still awake? Are you astonished that we were able to get through that much scripture that quickly with me teaching? It's a miracle. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. Closing, Daniel 8 shows us, it shows that God made predictions about the future, right? It's prophecy. Daniel 8 shows us that God predicted the future and gave the vision of that prediction and its answer through visions, through an angel and all that to Daniel. I mean, that's just, that's just the bottom line. That's one of the big things that you draw from this text. I mean, you can get all wrapped up in the minutia and Medo-Persia and Greece, and this is precisely why I did not want to divide this text and talk about Medo-Persia one week and Greece the next and this the next. And seven weeks later, I make this point. The point is, is, is now. Daniel 8 shows that God made predictions about the future. He predicted the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. He predicted the rise and split of the Greek Empire. He predicted the rise and fall of Alexander the Great, the greatest Greek king of all time. He predicted the rise and fall of Antiochus Epiphanes, a terrible, horrific persecutor of the Jews and precursor to Antichrist. And he predicted the desecration and restoration of the temple. Right? That's chapter 8 summarized. History shows that God's predictions are accurate. Because when we look back, we can see how these things came to pass. Now, it is totally true that it took time for them to come to pass. 370 plus years, but they came to pass. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that He is true to His Word, doesn't it? That's what I want you to walk out of here with. It tells us that He is true to his word. It tells us that when he states that something is going to happen, even if it hasn't happened yet, because there are things yet to come, it states, if he states that it is going to happen, even if it hasn't come yet, it will come to pass. We can base that theology right here on Daniel 8 and 
with an evaluation or summary of history where we look back and see how these things came to pass. It tells us, it shouts, it exclaims, bullhorn from the tallest roof in Modesto, the red lion or double tree or whatever the heck it's called now. God is true to His word. And what does that mean? What is the implication? If God is true to His word, then that means that He is someone we can trust. He is someone we can put our hope in. And I think we'd all agree that there is a shortage of trustworthiness, a shortage of faithfulness among people today. I think all all the things that I witness, even amidst myself at times, because I sometimes struggle with being trustworthy or following through with things, I think one of the things that that really gets me, you know, the profanity and the debauchery and all of that, sure, those things bug me. I think the world is gearing up for the return of Christ, and He's going to come, and it's going to be a really bad place, but He's going to make it a really good place. But one of the things that really gets my goat, pardon the pun today, is the lack of faithfulness and trustworthiness among people. There, there used to be a time where a person's word meant something. But today it's like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. And anyone... Hearing me? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Have you seen this? Are you a voter? Do you watch politics? You don't need to go any further than politicians and government. Uh, They say they're going to do this, they do that. They say they're going to do this, they don't do that. This is a part of our Adamic nature. The sin. A great many do not follow through with their promises. And this this, this just absolutely makes it difficult, nearly impossible to trust people. You just don't know what's going to happen. And if you've been burned once because someone didn't follow through, it's really, really hard to put trust in them again. There's a statute of limitations. It's 29 years. That's basically my vindictive nature. And, 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 and isn't this part of the fall that we, that we rely maybe too much on people? It, it, you know that you're an offender in this area if the lack of trustworthiness and unfaithfulness of people really gets your goat. I just can't believe he's done it again. Translation, I just don't understand human nature. You just can't put your trust. It doesn't mean that you can't trust people, that you can't depend on them, that, okay, I'm just, I'm a fatalist. I just, no responsibility for anyone. Uh, Kids, do as you please. Be fun for two weeks. And then you get out the hose and put out the fires. I just you can't, you can't put your trust in people at the level that, that, that we do. You, you can't put your trust in government. You can't put your trust in chariots, as it says in Scripture. 
Some put their trust in chariots. We put our trust in the Lord. These people are, are hard to trust because they're sinners. And even those sinners who have been saved by grace are sometimes very hard to trust because the remnants of those things continue on. But God, on the other hand, is true to His Word. He is the antithesis of us. If He speaketh, He doeth. A little King James action for you. He is faithful to His Word. He is faithful to His promises. He is faithful to His people. He is so unlike us. We can actually bank on Him. We can actually build our lives upon the bedrock of Scripture. And the Bible teaches that the man or woman who does this will not be dislodged and tossed about by the storms and circumstances of life. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus said, if you build upon the Word, upon my teachings, you're like a wise man who builds his home on rock. If you do not, you are like a foolish man who builds upon sand. And when the storms and winds rise, your place comes tumbling down. We can bank on God. We can bank on His Word. We can actually build our lives and our families and our businesses and all of the ventures and things that we are involved in. We can and should build them upon the truth, upon Scripture. And if we do that, man, when the storms come, I will not be shaken, Jesus' firm foundation. Why do you think we pick these songs? So I'll end with a question or two. What are you building upon? Are you building upon the bedrock of Scripture? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the God of the Bible who not only predicts the future but fulfills it? The God of the Bible who has sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation for us, to redeem, save, sanctify. Are you trusting in that God? If you are building upon Scripture, if you are trusting in the God of the Bible, your life will be characterized by things like courage, boldness, faithfulness, trustworthiness, contentment, joy, if not, your life will be characterized by the opposite. Fear, discontent, timidity, dread, disarray, chaos. So how has the Holy Spirit convicted you this morning? Which camp are you in? Are you building upon sacred scripture, the rock? Upon Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in God, the God who predicts and fulfills? The God who has made covenant with His people, the God who has made promises, and the God who keeps His promises? Your life is going to look a certain way. It's not going to be perfect. But it'll be different. It'll be what this community and world needs to see.